Well, this week, guys, I am excited because I get to preach here for the first time at the Independence Campus. I know, right? Yes. And I'm excited. And uh, the first time that I was scheduled to preach was on Easter. Uh, And even with Easter and kind of the launch, if you don't know, we launched in January. It's so exciting. The Lord has just continued to bless us. Uh, And we were thinking about normal, you know, how to get our campus of to experience excellence across the board with all our serve teams. And then Easter was coming and we were kind of at that spot where do we go to three services? Do we keep two? What does this look like for outreach with the community? And I was going to preach and COVID happened and we stopped and we put a hold. And so it's been six, seven months and Pastor Peter approached me uh, probably about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And he's like, hey, Eric, would you like to preach? And I was like, Absolutely. It has been way too long since I've been with our people. I want to share my heart. I want to share with the, just connect with them. And as I I was preparing for this message, the Lord just put on my heart this one word. And that word was faith. Faith. I think about 2020, 2020, I think about that our church more than ever needs to be men and women of faith. And so the title of this message is a faith that saves, a faith that endures, and a faith that finishes well. And so it's a lot, but I'm excited, and I hope that, Lord willing, one day we all, before a creator, before a father, hear the sweet words, well done, good and faithful servant. So we're going to unpack that. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this time to be able to just preach and share my heart with our campus. Lord, I pray that your word would, uh, you say in your scripture that your word will not return void. I pray that your word would speak to the depths of our hearts and change us from the inside out. That it would have its full, complete work within our lives so that we can leave here more in love with you and more like you. So Lord, anything uh, that's from me, I pray would fall on deaf ears. I pray that you would become greater, I would become less, and may you be glorified here today. We pray all this in the sweet, precious name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And as you're turning there, Psalm 69 is one out of 42 lament psalms that's found in the Bible. The psalm is penned by David, King David, whose suffering made him an object of ridicule and scorn from his enemies. David, as he's writing this psalm, it's important to note that he's in distress. He's full of anguish and he's fearing his life. So just as a heads up, he's going to start off strong, all right? Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods, they oversweep me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And church, I'm going to stop there. As I think about 2020, these three verses encapsulate how I have been feeling this year. I don't know if you can relate, but I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm exhausted, and I'm crying out, Lord, save me. Lord, save us. When it talks about the deep mire in verse two, 
It's the visual of a swamp or a marsh of, in which you are entangled or bogged down in mud. And the more you try to free yourself, the more you fight, the more you sink in. And it's very dangerous. It's exhausting. And not only that, with the mire, the more that you fight, the more that you struggle, the more that it muddies up the water beneath you where you can't even see what's holding you down. And when I think of the mire in our life right now, guys, just if we play back 2020, COVID-19, I still remember the week, the week of, in which it was kind of a joke with our culture. It was just with friends. It's like, oh, that will never hit us. And then all of a sudden, it switched. It's like a light switch. And then there was this fear and this panic. There was these estimations of the deaths and what would happen. And we saw cases spike. And there was confusion. No one knew fully about this virus. And we're still figuring it out. And we see the experience and we still feel the experience of the effects of COVID. Right? Schools. Most schools are not in person. And so kids are learning glued to a screen seven to eight hours a day. Glued to a screen. That's not normal. That's not how kids should learn. I never thought I would hear of murder hornets. Right? I never thought I would see an outage of toilet paper at Kroger where you can't find toilet paper anywhere. We got to have toilet paper. I saw one guy online buy 18,000 hand sanitizer bottles. 18,000 because his goal was to flip because everyone wanted hand sanitizer. And then they told him, hey, you can't resell this. (laughs) And so he was stuck with 18,000 bottles in his basements. And I think he ended up donating it two days ago. I saw on the news that there's this thing called fire tornadoes. Have you guys ever heard of fire tornadoes? I didn't know those existed. I'm like, what is going on? But also this year, this is election year. I know it's creating a lot of angst with a lot of people of who's in the White House. I think of the protests that are happening, that have been happening, that also causes angst. I think the media, this is one thing that I have learned kind of over the years, and I'm more aware now than ever, is the media is the key factor that muddies up the water of what to believe. We could have one event and then 10 to 20 articles or narratives getting thrown at us of what to believe. I'm I'm just like, I don't know what to believe. And so everything I see online, I'm just like, I don't believe it. I got to test it with scripture. And it's hard. It's, It's confusing. And it's tough. I think of these masks. I left my mask right over there. As I was sitting, sitting, these masks have been probably one of the most divisive things within our church family. I'm just going to be honest with you. As a pastor, I've had more conversations with the mask. I know where people are at with the mask. But what breaks my heart, church, is I don't know where people are at with Jesus. Look around us. They got half our our campus. How do I love people that are here, present, but also people that are watching from the comforts of home? My heart's desire is to grow wide and deep with you all, to run the race with you all. And now it just seems like, oh, we just hit a wall. And, you know, it seems like the game has changed, and it has, right? And so we are not ones that are living in fear during this time. I want you to know I'm not living in fear But I'm trying to adapt. I'm trying to rethink how I've always done things and be dependent on the Lord. 
to act with in- integrity and, uh, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, prefer other people. But it's hard. It's tough. And it seems like it changes each and every week. And guys, the storms that I just listed, these are all external storms. The deeper, more serious storms are within our own hearts. Fear and anxiety is more than it's ever been. It's through the roof. Frustration and anger with believers, with our church, is out of control at times. People, you know, posting on social media of battling with words. Maybe it's just this own anger that you experience of people's stupidity and their foolishness, and you just condemn them within your hearts, right? I've been guilty of that. Personal sin, I think, can be rampant as people over and over turn to things that will just pass the time or things that will numb the pain. And so an application question, I'm going to have these kind of all throughout this sermon, and this is for you, for your own heart. What is the mire in your life? Name the floods that are oversweeping you. I'm going to give you 10 seconds. Just in your bulletin, if you've got a pen, write down, what is the mire in your life? Name the floods. Give it a name. As you are writing, one of the main questions I constantly hear, and I ask my own self, is this. Lord, when will this end? When can we go back to normal? When it, will it end? Like, will it end? And that's how I relate to verse 3. My eyes grow dim waiting for my God. And church, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if it's going to end. I think we still might see effects for a long time. I want it to end. I just don't know. I'm not God. So this is where we're at, and this is why we need faith. And a part of me, as, even as I share this, guys, I don't want to play this, this pity game. Woe is me. Just feel sorry for your pastor. No, I know that we're all going through this. But as I was thinking about this, it's not just toughen up, Eric, and sweep it under rug. I realize in Scripture we have an enemy. Ephesians six twelve says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Darkness, chaos, confusion. Doesn't that sound a lot like spiritual warfare? And so I just want to say this. I want you to know, church, it's okay to feel this way. I'm not saying it's okay to sin. I'm not saying that. But it's okay to be honest with yourself. It's okay to be honest with your emotions, to cry out to God. I think it shows our humanity. It reveals reveals our weaknesses and how small and really out of control we are. Not out of control with them, but just that we can't change things. But hear me out, church, all right? How we respond to the storms of our lives, whether it's outside or within our own hearts, how we respond is the number one thing that will separate us from the world. 
I'm going to repeat that. How we respond to the storms within or outside is the number one thing that will separate us from the world. And so that's our first point. A faith that saves is a faith that cries out to God. In your bulletin is an acronym of faith. I got this from Pastor Peter. He probably got this from somewhere else. But it's very helpful for me. Faith, forsaking all, I trust him. Because the reality is, it's not if there's storms, it's when the storms, when the, the waters rise. The reality is, we can put our faith into a lot of things. We can trust in a lot of things besides God. You can trust in your own efforts, just toughen it up, all right? Try to tread water, fight against the storm. You can trust in people around us, people who's in the White House. You can have faith and comfort as long as I get my desires, my dreams, even though the world is in chaos, everything's okay because I'm comfortable. You could put your faith in material things to try to prevent the storms from happening and just hunker down, but you miss it. If you are here and you are a believer, we, you, should look to the one and the only one that can save us. The creator of everything in heaven and on earth, the alpha and the omega, the great I am, the all-powerful, all-knowing, the God who saves, Yahweh himself. And ultimately, this posture, the posture of crying out to God, God save me, is what brings him great delight and glory to God. Which brings us to our second point, along with crying out to God. A faith that saves trusts in God's perfect timing. Psalm 69, look at verse 13 through 16. It says this, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. And the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be, de- be delivered from my enemies, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Where's David in life right now? He's fearing his life. If you look at verse four, it says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. There's people, multitudes of people that are ridiculing, mocking him. He fears his life. And yet he says, Lord, you will save me at an acceptable time. I trust in you. And you know why he can trust in God? It's because God has proven himself over and over in David's life. Ever since he was a boy, a little shepherd's boy, caring for the sheep, he knows that God is good. He knows the character, the heart of the Father. And over and over again, God has been his refuge, his savior. His theology was sound. God's timing is always perfect. We know that God's sovereign. And there is a reason for everything he does when we don't fully understand why. I read an article that's entitled, When God Hurls a Storm at You by Rick Thomas. It says this, it's in that quote on your bulletin. Whether than trying to figure out whether you deserve the storm based on your performance, it would be better to ascertain what God wants to teach you. Here are a few sure things to know about God. Number one, he is good. Number two, he loves you immeasurably. 
Number three, his storms are for his glory. And number four, his storms are for your good. And so when you're in the season of life where you're questioning God, when are you going to save me? Do you care? It's best, church, to filter with what God, the God, God truths of him and the Bible. What you know about him. Is your theology sound? Is it correct? And so use those four things. He is good. He loves you immeasurably. His storms are for his glory and his storms are for your good. I know in your bulletin it says read Matthew 14 and I'm just going to try to summarize it just for the sake of time. Okay, Matthew 14 it starts off with a chapter of John the Baptist, Jesus's close friend, his family, the one who prepares the way for Jesus, he's beheaded in prison by King Herod. Herod. And then from there, Jesus hears of the word, and he is sad. He is grieving, and he wants to isolate himself, go to a desolate place with his disciples, and just mourn, right? That's the humanity of Jesus. But it says in Matthew 14 that the crowds were always following him. They wanted to be around him. Instead of shooing them off, he went to his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat because he had compassion on them. They were like a sheep without a shepherd. He said, I'm going to feed them. And so the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, we only got five loaves and we only got two fish. Like it would take a year's salary to feed all these people. So I could just bring what you have, give it to me. And Jesus miraculously, I don't know how, but he just multiplies the bread and the fish. And then he gives it back to the disciples. Just go feed them. The disciples, it says that they fed 5,000 men, and that was not including women and children. 5,000. And once the crowds had their filled, he sent them home, and he went to a mountain and pray. So the disciples, hey, I want you guys to cross over the Sea of Galilee. I'll be there later. For you guys, just go ahead and get a head start. I'm going to go and be with my father. And so here's Jesus on this mountain, right? He's with his father. He's with the spirit. He's experiencing this, this perfect communion, this perfect fellowship. And yet his disciples are out there. This was evening, okay? He sent the disciples a long time ago. The disciples, it's in the, uh, the third watch of the night, which is around 3 to 6 a.m., All right, they've been there a long time and yet Jesus is still in control. You can probably see that he oversees the Sea of Galilee. He can see them off in the distance. He knows their hearts. He knows, he maybe can hear them grumbling. Where's Jesus? Why isn't he in the boat helping us row? Sure be helpful. All right, doesn't he care? The water's starting to get in. I'm getting wet. What's going on? Where's Jesus? Imagine Jesus. Father, I'm just speculating, by the way. Should we go and help them? (laughs) Should we go now? Now this is more important. Let's wait a little longer. He's in control. And then it says around 4 a.m. that he started walking to his disciples on water. And the disciples see a figure off in the distance, and they're like, they're scared. They're frightened. Look, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter's like, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come out, come out of this boat and walk on water. And Jesus is like, come, let's go. Peter, 
Imagine 12 people. He gets out of this boat, shaking, and he tests the water. Oh, is it going to hold me? Is it going to hold my weight? I think it is. All right, I'm going to try it. And he gets out, and he starts walking to Jesus with his eyes fixed on him. He's doing the impossible. He's walking on water, church. But the scriptures tell us that when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and started noticing the winds and the waves beneath him and around him, he started to sink. It wasn't just a little sink, right? It was, no, he started drowning. He's struggling. He's fighting. He says, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and saves him. And he puts him in the boat. He says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And the disciples worshiped him. In that scenario, right, you have Jesus on the mountain with his father for hours upon hours, but still is in control. He still loves us. He still cares for us, but he's doing something else. And then with Peter, he immediately reaches out his hand when we cry for help. And if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, I just want to say, have you cried out to God, Lord, save me? It's a very simple prayer, but that's what it looks like to put your faith, forsaking all, I trust him. Not other things save me. Lord, save me. And I want you to know that right here, right now, God immediately will save your soul and transfer you from the kingdom of death to his very own kingdom. He loves you immediately. And so that, if you want to pray that prayer, please come see me after. That's what it means to be a Christian, to turn away from your sin and cry out, Lord, save me. Now is the day. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. But for believers, for Christians, let me ask this question. Is your first response to cry out to God? And are you willing to wait on his timing? Is your first response to cry out to God and, to, and are you willing to wait on his timing? Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, he is a jealous God. In your bulletin, you'll see Hebrews 12, 26 to 29. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken, faith may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What if God is shaking our American culture, is shaking everything around us that we put our comfort in to reveal our false idols with the purpose of drawing you closer to him and having true and authentic faith. That's his goal. He's a jealous God. He wants all of you, not just a part of you. He wants you. So this leads me to the second point. A faith that endures keeps their eyes 
on the prize. Remember Peter on the water? Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so what is biblical faith? One of the number one answers is to have people turn to a Hebrews 11, where it's a clear definition of what faith is. It says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's the ESV. The word assurance is a translation of a single Greek noun, hypostasis or hypostasis, which literally means that which stands under or foundation and hence substance. I got that from a commentary by Hughes. That's why King James and New King James versions, if you have that, that Bible, it says, now faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hughes, also in that commentary, goes on to say, say that faith is a solid sureness, a substantial certitude of what we hope for. There's no doubt. It is this full confidence, this all in, that God is true to his word. It's true to his promises. And we can trust in that. There is no doubt. And so I was thinking, as believers, what do we put our hope in? What do you put our hope in? Well, here are just a few. But one of the things is we put our hope in Christ's return, right? John 14, 1 through 3 has been just kind of permeating throughout my life, and the Lord continues to remind me of it. Jesus is with his disciples on the final night, and he says, "Uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Trust also in God. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, doesn't that mean I'm going to return and come and get you so that you may be with me always, forever? We're longing for his return. Glorification, right? That's a theological term that, that basically means that we're going to receive new bodies, imperishable bodies. Our bodies right now, they're failing. They're weak. All right, that's why cancer, why people die. It's because our bodies are perishable because of sin, because we live in a fallen world. But when we die, when, if we're believers, our faith is put in him, we will receive new bodies. We will not have this sinful nature. Our bodies and our soul is redeemed. There will be no sin. The other thing that I think that we long for, we should long for the hope, is heaven. All right? If you have your Bibles, you can turn real quick to Revelation 21. Just going to give you a glimpse. This is God's word. As you're turning there, uh, Randy Alcorn has this awesome book. It's entitled Heaven, and it's pretty big. And it's just all about what heaven's going to be like from his word. And it is awesome. I would encourage you to, to read it. But Revelation 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth, has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Check this out, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
Do you long for that? Do you long for that? <laughs> yes, I hope you scream within. Yes. <laughs> Look at 2020. Yes, come. Come, Lord. Guys, these are just three examples. Scripture and the inheritance that you have in Christ is unbelievable. It's immeasurable. Read his word. The hope is great of what we have, but you've got to know what God says. And so two quick things I want to share with you of with this point, okay? Faith, what you believe in, produces hope. If it's the right things, it will produce hope, okay? And hope, the level of degree, will produce perseverance, all right? Hang with me. I'm going to uh, hopefully simplify it. Faith produces hope. Hope produces perseverance. There is a direct correlation to what we hope for and what we're willing to endure in this life. Okay? There's a direct correlation. Another way of saying it is the greater the prize, the greater the price you're willing to pay. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I, some of you guys know I have two kids. Uh, I'm a girl dad. I've got two girls, two and four. They're fun. Uh, I have obviously a wife and then my dog's a girl as well. So there's a lot of hormones uh, around me. And uh, before COVID, my kids hate getting their hands dirty. They hate the mud. If they see a bug, no, no joke. If they see an ant, they will squeal and scream and just run. It's like the world is collapsing on them. They're, they're afraid of their life. A little ant. All right. And I'm like, come on, babe. That's my wife. I'm like, we got to change this. And so with COVID, we just decided that every weekend we're going to commit to going on a hike. And so we go to Middle Creek uh, Park. It's a beautiful place. I highly recommend it. And we started off uh, small. And so we just take some walks and then the loop is three miles. And after probably four, four weeks, five weeks of doing this, I was like, let's, I think they're ready for the three mile loop, which is a tough, tough little trail. And so we're going, and uh, you know, if you have little kids, you know that around mile, uh, a mile or a mile and a half, the kids start complaining, right? Sarah's like, Dad, it's so hot outside. I'm sweaty. I'm tired. Can we go back home? Can we go back to the car? No, we're not going back to the car. We got to go forward. But Dad, oh, and I just want to stop and moan and groan. And you're just like, as a parent, it's like nagging. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Oh, this is horrible. Should I even have done this in the first place? And they're focused on their surroundings. And you can, you could say, hey, just, just suck it up. All right, we got we to gotta push through this. And that doesn't work if you're a parent, just as a heads up. It doesn't work because they're going to experience the struggle and what they're feeling. And they're going to keep complaining, right? But what does work It's this little word called redirection or refocus, all right? This is a key, what I've learned in parenting. And so if I pull Sarah and Sadie down and I say, hey, come here real quick. Hey, we're going to do this hike. And if we can get through this three-mile hike, and I know it's tough, I know it's hard, but afterwards, we're going to get ice cream. We're going to get ice cream. And guys, it's not going to just be any ice cream. It's going to be a Maristop ice cream, the soft serve kind. And you know what? This is me as a father. I'm going to tell the worker to make that ice cream as big as you can. Just stack it up as big as you can just for you. So you're going to get the biggest ice cream possible. 
Do you know what happens? Their eyes light up. They change their whole demeanor. They're now running and skipping and excited and talking to each other. They're friends. And it's like, this is how I wanted it the whole time. But guys, it's because the prize was great. They were focused on something greater than what they were experiencing. Right? And then even later, 10, 15 minutes in, they might go back to that same old struggles. Dad, this is hard. But they're still going. And then all I have to do, hey, Sarah, what kind of ice cream are you going to get? Are you going to get chocolate? Are you going to get vanilla? Are you going to get twists? Amerisop only has three flavors, by the way. And then she's like, twists. I'm going to get twists. And then we can go 10 more minutes. And at the end of this strenuous, hard hike, even for me, it's so much sweeter to enjoy that ice cream with your family. Look, you pushed through. You made it. Keep your eye on the prize. And as I was thinking about just this little example, I started thinking about my own life and uh, the truths within this. And then I started looking at scripture and God just gave things to my heart and to my mind at 1 a.m. in the morning, by the way. And he was like, Eric, remember this scripture. And so you see that diagram on your bulletin? We're going to go to there. So turn to Romans 5, 3 through 5. Romans 5, I want you to see this from God's word himself. All right, I'm going to start in verse 1 to kind of give us some context, okay? Therefore, since we have been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by what? Faith into this grace in which we now stand. And what that means is we, by faith, we are entered into this right standing with God, this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It starts with hope. All right? You got to get that. It starts with hope. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, through he has given us. And so with your diagram, okay, we're going to map this out. At the top, put hope. All right, that diagram. You can put Romans 5, 3 through 5. Put hope in the glory of God. The next thing is hope is sufferings. All right, suffering. So put that in the next, to the right of it. From there, at the bottom, put endurance or perseverance. And then on the left, put character. And specifically, put godly character. And then character goes back to hope. It should look like this. You guys see that? This is truly fascinating to me. It's a cyclical. It keeps repeating itself over and over again. This is what sanctification of looking more like Christ it doesn't just happen just like that. We have to go through suffering. We have to endure. It produces godly character. And then we're filled with this life, this joy. And so here, I want to share this. 
I already told you that there's a direct correlation with the hope, the top one, and your endurance of what you're willing to sacrifice. There's also a direct correlation between the character that you receive and the sufferings. For example, all right, I pray for patience. Lord, give me patience. I'm just struggling with impatience. I'm so quick to act. And so what does the Lord do? He has your wife go to Ikea and buy shelves. (laughs) Tells you to put it together. Like, all right, I want to put this together. (laughs) Chelsea knows. And so you're putting it together and you're like, oh, this is Ikea shelf. All right, this is going to take an hour. Eight hours later, you're struggling, you're fighting with this shelf, and then it's done. And that suffering, you had the option, am I going to be patient or am I going to just break this and go buy another shelf already made, right? So sufferings, there's a correlation between sufferings and characters, but you have to endure. And it's not only that, I kind of put in your notes, Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. So remember Hebrews 11, the faith, what is faith? Well, right before that, the author talks about the church. Okay, you can look at that on your own. I'm going to continue just for the sake of time. You can map that out on 32 through 39. But then also turn to James 1, 2 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to James 1. I want you to see this. This is a a common verse that you hear in Christian circles, right? You guys are there? One, two, three, four. It says, count it all joy, right? You have joy because of the hope, the faith that you believe in. That produces joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, suffering, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. And then you're like, well, how does it go back to hope? Have you ever experienced of just living the way that you're created to live? That your conscience is clear before God and man? That you're living by the spirit and not by the flesh? What does that produce? That produces freedom. That produces joy, right? You're like, This is how it's meant to be. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I can follow God and love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of my favorite verses, and I've shared this with this campus a lot, but it's it's just the next um, book. It's 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and glorious. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So for James, this is what this diagram looks like. Next slide. Starts with joy. Goes through trials. And those trials produces steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. So that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking anything. Sanctification. And through that, it goes back to joy. And it's this continual cycle. And both diagrams looks like that. Which brings me to my final point, church. That we would have a faith that finishes well. I don't know if you guys know this, but I've been a Christian for over 17 years. And have been in ministry 
pretty much the whole time. And it breaks my heart, literally. I am just disheartened, disheartened when I see people that started off well and they're no longer running the race. They're no longer following Jesus. And I'm not trying to get into debate here today. I am simply just giving you my observations. And it's people in the big C, the big church, big C. It's people in our church. It's people in parachurch ministries. And guys, it is many. And they're living as enemies of the cross. My heart for each and every one of you, along with me, is that we would finish well. That we would finish well. And so I want to close with Hebrews 11. The men and women of faith. And my hope was to read all of this, but we are running out of time. And so I encourage you, if you want to go back, just do some digging. Just read this. It is beautiful. Faith appears 26 times in here. And when, as I look about the, the lives of these people that the author suggests of men who finish well, men and women who finish well, I'm reminded that these guys, they're not perfect. They have faults. They have flaws. They're just like us. Things, you know, that are major blunders <laughs> of conscience. Like, what were you thinking? And yet, they finish well because their faith was in Jesus. Their faith was in him. I'm going to read a portion of it, starting in verse 32. It's where it kind of like picks up a little. He says this, and what more shall I say after listing all these people who by faith, this is what they did. Verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy of them. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended, though approved, praised through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Guys, doesn't this get you excited? It's like a rally cry. Who the world was not worthy of them. When you think you have it rough or tough, go to this. Look at the people of old. I think they had it a lot worse than what we're experiencing. They were commended by their faith. But church, it doesn't stop there. Go to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we, us, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 12.1. Therefore, since we are going back to 12.1, guys, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these aren't spectators of just watching us run. These are people, the men and women of the faith, the saints who have ran the race and finished well. They're the ones cheering us on. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. Look around, church, even people in this room. We're all in a race, a race of life, a race of faith. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's like an ultra marathon, a hundred miler. It's tough. One of the hardest things I've done in my life is run a half marathon. If you look at me closely, all right, not too closely, I have not crafted this body to be a long distance runner. All right? Not going to stand up. It's obvious. Okay? Yet I did it. And if you don't know this about running, running is boring. Just straight up boring. They talk about this runner's high. It doesn't exist. I haven't found it. Mile one is the same as mile nine. It's hard. I don't like it. But on race day at the Flying Pig, it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Hundreds, if not thousands of people woke up and showed up in the race to cheer for all the runners passing by. Have you ever been cheered for? My daughter is four years old. She just started soccer. You know her number one request? I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Her number one request is this. Daddy, will you come and cheer for me? Ah! They're horrible, by the way. (laughs) They don't know where they're going. But that's all she wants. She just wants me to cheer for her. Like, yes, babe, I'm going to be there as much as I can to cheer for you, specifically. Cheering for other people is powerful. It's contagious. It motivates you to run and to give your best. And so at this race, I'm out of shape. All right, I didn't train fully well, but there's all these people, and I'm running, and I'm like, I'm not giving up. I want to keep going. All right? But you know what happens if you do stop or you do take a walk? What do the people do? They cheer for you louder. And they give you more encouragement. Because they don't care what time you get when you finish. They care that you just finish. They care that you finish. And that is our goal. To finish and finish well. And so here's the application for our church. What does this look like to finish well? The first thing is this. Stop running alone. It's boring. It's not fun. We were created to run with others, run together, join a community group, be known, and experience God's grace and his love through other people. You will go through mental blocks and struggles in this life. It will be tough. But pity is a man who falls and has no one to pick him up. Run with other people. The second thing, in verse 1, 
We see that scripture tells us to throw off, to shed off the sin that weighs us down, that clings so closely. Imagine, this is what it's like. You got a bag, 30, 50 pounds. Just let it go. Just drop it. Leave it behind and pursue Jesus. No one in their right mind would bring 30 to 50 pounds to run a marathon. That's foolishness. That's stupidity. Let it go. Because the goal is to endure. And you can endure longer when your heart is free. When you're not carrying the sin. It's as simple as just turning from our sin. It's called repentance. And letting it go. Pursuing Jesus. The third thing is keep your eye on a prize. Remember the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. This will allow you to endure mile 17. I don't know about mile 17. I just hear from other runners. They talk about mile 17 in a marathon as uh, this block, this mental block in which you hit a wall. It's not a physical wall. It is an invisible wall, all right? And they're struggling. The runner's struggling with, is this worth it? Should I stop? Why am I even doing this? God, what am I doing? And they go through this this mental just battle within. They got to remember the hope. They got to remember the prize, the crown of life at the end. That's what will push you through. Church, we're not going back. We're not shrinking back in fear. We're pressing it on towards the upward call of Christ Jesus. That is our goal. That is our prize. Where he will reward us a crown of life, a crown of righteousness. Hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But we got to push through. And the only way you can push through is knowing why you're pushing through. Knowing the hope that we have. And to close, we can't forget this, guys. Verse 2, Hebrews 12, 2. It says this. And looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who completes our faith, let us also lay aside every, excuse me, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You guys remember that diagram? You can draw that same diagram below. All right? who for the joy set before him, right? This joy could be a lot of things with Jesus. One, he's in perfect communion with with God, enjoying the fellowship of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's in heaven, all right? His goal, his heart's desire is to do the will of the Father, all right? That was the joy to do his will. But what was his will? To be a sin sacrifice for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So it's God's will that the world might be reconciled back to him. And so part of that joy was you and was me. It was the joy that all would be restored and made right in the world. And so that is where he started. And then he experienced the sufferings on the cross. He was flogged. He was crucified. He experienced God's wrath because he became a sin sacrifice, the punishment of sin 
was death. And with those sufferings, he endured it. He didn't stop. He endured all of it. Every last drop of God's wrath, he took it. And then you may be wondering, well, how does this go to the character, right? He's fully God. He's already perfect. You're right. But he's also fully man. And for us, man, we missed the mark. We failed miserably. Romans 5, 19, for as one man's sin, or for one man's act of a disobedience, the many were made sinners, us, just so as one man's act of obedience, the many will be made righteous. Hebrews 5, 8 says that even though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Christ represented all mankind and he was perfect and completely obedient, not lacking anything because he took our place and died the death that we deserved and was a pure and spotless sacrifice for us so that our faith would be in him and not in our own works. If you're trusting in your own works, it will not save you. But if you put our faith in him, it was perfect and complete. That's the faith that we have. And then look at the end. Where is he at? He's seated at the right hand of God. Seated. This idea that it is finished. Jesus is not going to continue this cycle over and over again. No, he already completed the cycle and it is done. And he's at the right hand of God, experienced the joy and the hope that he once had before. And he's waiting for you and for me until that day when everything is made right. Do you see that? Church, I want to run with you. I'm not good at running. I need people in my life. I want to run with you. I care for you. We need each other. Throw off the sin and keep your eye on the prize for he is worth it.